welcome to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and this is your regular weekly science catch-up of all things that you might not know, but by the end of the show you will and, you know, it's always the best science that we bring to you here at Lost in Science. And this week on the show, um, I'm here with Stu. Hi, Stu. Hi, Claire. Good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you. Um, now, what have you got for us and our dear listeners this week, Stu, in the world of science? Well, look, I don't want to sound uh, like a broken record, but I am I am talking uh, AI again. Um it's just there's just so much going on in the world of yeah. machine learning and it's really kind of mm. you know grabbing grabbing headlines all over the place people are freaking out and thinking they're going to lose their jobs and all sorts of things like that but I thought I'd I'd try and uh get a bit of positive uh positive press on AI there is some amazing stuff that that machine learning is doing in the world of science and research and not just you know um making cool, weird Wes Anderson parodies on, on you know, social media. <laughs> um, there, you know, there's, there's some really functional, useful stuff that, that machine learning and AI is doing. And I just thought I'd focus a little bit on that this week because, you know, it's, it's not going to go away and we might as well <laughs> embrace the positive, mm. I think. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is not at all funded by big AI or you don't have like some sort of machine learning robot behind you holding a gun to your your back, do you? Well, you know, even if I did, I couldn't say, could I? So, no. I Look, obviously, it, it's just something It is catching my interest as well as, you know, all the other journalists and, and science writers out there. But, there, you know, I just thought I'd, there there is some cool stuff that is being facilitated by by AI and algorithms being developed by machine learning. So I just thought I'd have a look at some of those that are happening at the moment. Absolutely. We need to see all sides of the coin. Yeah. Well, um, I'm going to be talking this week not about AI, even though it is something that, you know, we're all thinking about. But, you know, I love a seasonal story and it is autumn. We're in deep autumn at the moment, um, which means a lot of things. But one specific thing is something, um, you know, that I know you is close to your heart, Stu, and that is mushroom foraging. So I'm um, going to be talking not only about mushroom foraging, but about one particular very deadly mushroom, the death cat mushroom. I mean, you know, they couldn't have given it a more more of a warning. It's not really a friendly name, is it? Yeah, the, you know, the na- it's called a death cat. Just take heed of what it's called. You know, I, I, mushrooms are close to my heart. I'm usually the fun guy on the show. You are normally the fun guy and I'm going to be the fun guy today and talk about the death cat mushroom because there's some new research uh, and some and scientists uh, think that they're on their way to producing an antidote to the mushroom, to the death cat mushroom, which has never happened before. So um, stay tuned for some. I, I mean, maybe it's a good news show. Good news AI. Good news for the for um, you know people who accidentally death cat mushrooms. <laughs> it's a good news week. Yeah, yeah. Science, science is good, and here is the good news from science. <laughs> On with the show.
machine learning is still giving journalists a lot to write about since it has started producing images and text that looks more and more like what humans are capable of doing. I mean, obviously, uh, journalists are worried about how good the text is going to get over the next little while, but it's not just um, creative people and journalists who are feeling slightly threatened by the advances in computer output. A recent study published in JAMA Internal Medicine has worried some doctors. Um, researchers took questions from an online health question service. You know, you basically type in your question and they mm. get answered by a qualified human doctor in real time. It's not a chatbot, it's an actual person in there. Um, but what they did was they took the questions that had been answered by qualified human doctors and fed them into chat GPT and collected the responses from the chatbot. Uh, then they gave the human and the computer responses randomly to three qualified health professionals who rated them for the quality of the answer and the amount of empathy they felt was being shown by the response. Now, the ChatGPT answers were rated as being higher quality than the human responses in... Wow. Yeah, in 79% of examples um, wow. compared to the, to the human responses. And, and this is probably a bit more um, worrying, I think. Um, they're rated as being more empathetic in 45% of the answers compared to... 5% of the answers from the human doctor. So... Was this a big sample size, did you say? Oh, look, it, it probably could be rerun with a larger panel of, of people rating them, yeah. I think. It was yeah. only three people they fed them, you know, awesome. that they gave them Awesome to. nicer doctors, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, you know, they could only use the doctor who was working on this, um, on this <laughs> okay. service, so they couldn't really... Broaden it, but you know, like maybe maybe some doctors do need to work on their interpersonal skills and and get mm. get that bedside manner uh, a bit more friendly. Um, but the you know the reality of AI is not all the negative end of employment doom, as machines are just really good at doing lots of things we can't do. How ma how many jobs it's going to take from people? We we can't put a number on that at any point. But there are things that that machine learning and AI can do that we wouldn't be able to do or you certainly wouldn't be able to do quickly. Um, like, for example, figure out connections to multiple variables in a scientific analysis, for example. So in many areas of research, the number of variables to be accounted for or removed, you know, downplayed is immense. And working out, mm. you know, how to figure out if they're important, it's really tedious work and pouring over these kind of multiple vari variables uh, is very much prone to human error as well. You do get tired and um, miss things and all that sort of stuff. Um, but using machine learning to reduce that kind of workload would accelerate research in, uh, in many fields and has already begun to deliver results in some areas. So uh, in a joint project between the University of New South Wales Chemistry Department and Boston University, researchers have been using machine learning algorithms to speed up the search for a test for Parkinson's disease. Um, there's, no, there's no diagnostic tests 
currently for Parkinson's. Um, there's no blood test, but there are metabolites in the blood that might be able to provide early warnings of Parkinson's well before any symptoms appear. Um, and there are, there are sort of precursor symptoms that are so sort of subtle that they might not be picked up. It's not like they're unique to Parkinson's. It's just that people who go on to develop Parkinson's have these kind of early warning symptoms. Um, but doctors or these research, medical researchers are looking through metabolites in, uh, in people's blood which may be warning signs or early warning signs of Parkinson's. But there are hundreds of thousands of metabolites. So metabolites are just chemicals that are present in your blood as your body breaks down food and as it produces other chemicals just going through its normal processes. There are potential warning signs which may indicate that people will develop Parkinson's. So what they've done is they've compared stored data from patients from a previous study in Europe who went on to develop Parkinson's later in life. So they've got this data from this, from this group from Europe and they've been able to match that data from a control group of people who didn't develop Parkinson's. And what they're looking for right. is any kind of correlations, whether they be you know positive or negative correlations for anything that might be in the blood. The problem is that there are hundreds of thousands of chemicals in the blood at any given time. Mm. So it's a really, really hard thing to do. But by using machine learning, they've been able to do it a lot faster than they would be able to do it otherwise. So the use of machine learning has cut out a lot of steps and it's simplified the identification of the chemicals most likely to be associated with the onset of Parkinson's with an accuracy they've estimated of up to 96%. So they've improved their predictive ability up to 96%. Now the accuracy is very high. The process is still in the early stages of development and they do need to gather more data to check against errors and this sort of thing. But they're talking about um, you know, some of the estimates they're saying they've shaved maybe decades off the research time that it would have taken to get to the point where they're at now by using machine learning. So that kind of acceleration is really, uh, it's a huge boost to this kind of research where they've got, you know, the, the human body is a very complex thing and you need to sort through a whole lot of stuff to figure out what's causing this. And this is, you know, this is one of the criticisms of medicine is that we there's so much stuff we still don't know. Well, the machine learning is certainly speeding up that process of, of discarding things that we that that, that aren't uh, that aren't going to be beneficial to know about um, for for specific things. Obviously, everything going on in the body is worth knowing about. I think from mm. a medical point of view. Um, but another project uh, where they were using machine learning in medical research was using. Uh, used to develop more stable and effective COVID vaccines much faster than human researchers would have been able to do so in that uh, area. Do you remember there was a citizen science project from a few years back called Fold It? Do you remember that one? Yes, I do. I do. Yeah, it was using people's home computers to generate novel protein configurations. So proteins fold in certain ways and and this it was basically like a game where you could you could fold 
proteins in certain ways and if they were uh, functional proteins you sort of got you know got points for getting that configuration it was just sort of fun thing people could use their home computers was actually helping research and some of those protein configurations that were new were the basis of further medical research and it actually informed that sort of <clears throat> research stream so this vaccine project is from a private firm called Baidu Research which is a Chinese company using machine learning to perform a similar function with mRNA used for vaccines. So one of the problems with mRNA as a delivery system for vaccines is that it breaks down very quickly. So it reduces its effectiveness in, in, uh, as a vaccine delivery system because in, in normal cells, it's intact only for a very short amount of time. It delivers information from the DNA in the cell to the, uh, the other machinery of the cell that makes new proteins. When it's used as a vaccine, breaking down that quickly means it doesn't last long enough to make a really good impression. So it's delivering this information about um, proteins so that the immune system can pick up that code and prompt an immune response in the body. Um, if the mRNA breaks down really quickly, then that message gets lost and you get a weaker signal, which means you get a weaker immune response. So what they did was they used uh, algorithms generated by machine learning, artificial intelligence, and they were able to generate the most stable mRNA strand possible for coding for spike proteins on COVID-19. The AI did this job in 11 minutes. Oh my goodness. It developed a new stable mRNA strand that's 128 times more effective than earlier versions of their mRNA delivery system in 11 minutes. So, you know, that kind of thing, uh, that, that will probably mean a more effective vaccine. It will mean as a result of the stability, a higher level of immunity in vaccinated people if it's used for COVID-19. But this kind of AI technology um, could easily be adapted to be used for other medical treatments, including delivery of drugs, delivery of other vaccines. It's a huge, you know, it's a, it's a big new, brave new world out there. Um, so, you know, I think these two kind of stories showing how AI is being used in medical research and how fast it can be at doing things that humans can do, but it will just take us a really, really long time. I think it's not all negative the changes that are coming it will certainly help speed things up in a lot of areas of science and research discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. I cannot accept half-baked theories that sell newspapers. I'm, I'm a scientist. Who are you? Who are so wise in the ways of science? A most distinguished scientist whose name we know, even in the wild of Transylvania. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. So, Stu, it's autumn, and we all know what that means. 
pumpkins are cheap as chips, deciduous trees are turning, you know, all the autumnal colours, reds, yellows, oranges, there's longer, colder nights, but still, you know, some nice warm sunny days. It's a magical time. Well, certainly, certainly where I am <laughs> and in some parts of the country. There's, there's other parts where it's That's... completely different season, but you know. The pumpkins are still cheap. This is Let's true. be clear. Let's be clear. <laughs> but there's also another wonderful thing that happens in autumn, something close to your heart, Stu. It's mushroom foraging time. We're talking field mushrooms, pine mushrooms, any other edible mushrooms that you might want to eat. I mean, there's a, yeah, there's a whole lot of them, and there's probably fungal fruiting bodies around at various times of year. But they probably come out in they're just popping up all over the place at this time of year. It's a couple yeah, exactly. of couple of things. The cooling of the atmospheric temperature means the soil's also cooling. But also we've get lots of rain and that is another trigger for the fruiting bodies to appear. Yeah, right, of course. So it's it's the um change in temperature and the rain mm. that really brings the mushrooms out. And when you say fruiting bodies, you mean the mushroom. The parts that we like to forage and eat, right? The mushroom itself, you know, we, we generally identify them by by the parts that pop up above the ground, which is the fruiting body, as I said, which produces the spores. But, oh, man, there's so much mushroom. There's so much... So much mushroom underground. So much more room underground. Yeah, I don't know. It's <laughs> There's just... The, the, one of the biggest living things that we know of in the world is a single fungus that's under a forest in North America. But, yeah... The, the pit above the ground, what we call a mushroom, or a toadstool, they sometimes get called, uh, is the fruiting body, yeah. It, they are absolutely incredible, and people who are brave enough to forage, there isn't any foraging without risk. You might be very, you might know uh, exactly what you're looking for, but um, there is a great deal of risk because, you know, some mushrooms you can eat, but a lot of mushrooms you cannot, and they are very, very poisonous. And the riskiest of all mushrooms is, drumroll, the death cap mushroom or Amanita philodes to um, its friends, obviously. Now, now this, these are some of the most poisonous fungi in the world. It is single-handedly responsible for 90% of mushroom-related fatalities worldwide. 90%. I mean, that is a large amount. It is It is a large amount. And it is. It, I think it's at least partly because it does look like some other mushrooms which are edible. And I think that's part of the problem is mm. it's, it's in disguise. It's, you know, it's a Decepticon yeah. of the mushroom world. It's a Decepticon. And just because they've given it the name Death Cap doesn't mean you can identify it that easily as a Death Cap. So today I'm going to, I'm, yeah, I'm going to, talk to you about the death cap i'm going to talk about the death cap but there's also some new research that's just come out that is actually um gives us hope for an antidote uh to the death cap mushroom which is much needed because there's a lot of deaths um that happen because of this mushroom worldwide but first things first the death cap mushroom it's a guild fungus um now when i read this i wasn't quite sure what that meant and i was like ah Look it up or just ask Stu. <laughs> well it doesn't Mushroom. It doesn't mean it can doesn't mean it can swim. It's it doesn't it doesn't jump into ponds and swim around with its gills. It just means No. No, it's you know, it's, so there's the uh, the underside of the cap of the mushroom 
has got ridges underneath, and then you know you can see that, and you, you know uh-huh. that's that's what well, I guess that yep. what most people would assume mushrooms look like. But there are other ones. What a mushroom is. Uh, other yep. ones have sort of spongy surfaces, and there's all sorts of different ways the spores get released. But yep. yeah, the gilled ones have those those ridges in a radial pattern underneath the cap. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. Well, there you go. Gilled fungus. It's got a cap that goes is from sort of you know it can be around light olive in color to greenish brown normally measures between five and 15 centimeters in diameter slightly sticky to the touch the stem is white can grow around 20 centimeters long and like you say they are very similar in appearance to many edible mushrooms so it does make it difficult to identify and it does increase the risk of accidental poisoning now death caps were introduced to Australia. They are mostly all over the world now, but they were introduced and they can be found mostly in the southeast of Australia. So they were thought to be brought here with the lovely deciduous trees. Uh, You know, I was speaking of before, like your oaks and your chestnut trees, uh, as the death cat mushroom forms a symbiotic relationship with those trees. So, you know, they can, the death caps can grow in urban areas in parks, wherever those trees, oak trees are, and chestnut trees have been planted. And one thing I also love about the death cap is that they are quite famous. There was a historical encounter with a um, with the death cap, and um, in ancient Rome, there was the Roman Emperor Claudius was assassinated with a meal of death cap mushrooms. Um, apparently, his wife. Was, a, was allegedly behind the assassination, um, which is sort of cool, and she prepared a meal for Roman Emperor Claudius, which included the nightcap mushrooms, and because they're tasteless and odorless, he didn't realise it, and then he died. Hmm, there you go. They live up to their name. <laughs> I would be suspicious that, you know, the wife of the emperor is preparing a meal. That would that would be my first clue that <laughs> something true. something was amiss. Where are where are my Something's Where are my servants? <laughs> oh, that's right. Um, so despite yeah, despite all these people dying from death caps, there's been little progress in developing any effective treatment for poisoning. Um, and there's, you know, hasn't been much in the way of an antidote until recently, uh, new research has shone a bit of a light on the mechanisms of how these mushrooms are toxic, um, and a potential treatment for mushroom poisoning. Uh, so what we know about how these death cat mushrooms poison is they have a specific toy, they have a specific poison. It's called alpha amanitin. And it is produced by the death cat mushroom and it causes um, irreparable liver and kidney damage uh, and then mortality after you eat them. And, and despite the fact that it is incredibly lethal, the exact molecular mechanism, like the way that it, um, that it affects your cells and poisons you um, and, you know, alpha and manitin, Alpha amanitin's toxicity in general remains unclear. So that was until this new study came out. It's been it's published in Science Advances by Australian and Chinese scientists, led by Kuoping Wang, and um, it may have changed this and give us some given us some hope for an antidote. 
So the researchers used uh, genome-wide CRISPR screening and to identify where and how this toxin, so the, um, the alpha amanitin, how it binds and causes the most harm to cells. So from this, they found a specific protein. They call it STT3B, but we can just call it the protein. Um, and how this protein, so this protein is required um, for alpha amanitin to have a toxic effect. So once they found this protein, um, uh, they found the site, I guess, that the alpha amanitin binds to that, that sets off this toxic reaction. And so they did a bunch of drug screening after this and they identified um, one particular drug. It's called indocyanin green um, and it actually can stop that protein, this protein, this STT3B, binding with the toxin. So that so if you're stopping the binding of the protein with the toxin, um, that means you stop the poisoning and it works pretty much like an antidote. So the indocyanin green was also found, um, so they, they, they tested it on a number of different, um, in a number of different ways. So they looked at a human cell line, like liver cell line, and tested um, the indocyanin green, this antidote, after they sort of, you know, gave it the um, gave it the death cap toxin, and they also exposed mice to the toxin and then gave it the um, the indocyanin green antidote as well, and found um, that there was an increase to the probability of, um, you know, both those cells and the mice surviving. So, you know, it's, it's promising, but as we know, cell lines and mice are not humans. Um, so it's, it's, it's still early days, but it is incredibly promising to be able to, um, have something, I guess, in our, um, in our back pocket to be able to treat this fungal poison. I think one of the reasons um, death caps are so deadly is because people do mistake them for edible fungi and they don't, because, it, because of the action of the toxin, it doesn't do anything bad to you until it hits your liver. And that's, that's part of mm. the reason that it, you know, that it has caused so many deaths. I think if there was an accidental, you know, if, 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 you know, someone's kid ate a a death cap and they were taken to hospital by their parents or something, that's probably a good chance that this antidote would work. But uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a, you know, unless they maybe develop a way of of injecting it straight into your liver or something like that. But, um, Mm. you know, it's, it's the... It's the action after you've consumed it that I think that is that is still the problem. But I mean, it's still yeah, as you say, it's still a great step forward for the um, for the the chances of survival of eating you know a fungus that's called a death cap. It's probably still just safest if you don't know your fungi, and even if you do, because I do know some mycologists who who just still will go, no, I'm not going to eat any foraged fungi because. <laughs> The, right. the the identification yeah. of fungi is a very very precise art, and if you don't know what you 
looking at, then you probably should just avoid them, I think. Absolutely. And, yep, if you suspect anyone has ingested a death cap, then, um, yes, seek help, medical attention immediately. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.